Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. I'm your host, Kara Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new article by Robinson et al. titled, Supporting and Promoting Black Physiologists. How can the APS help? This article was published May 4th, 2023. And joining us today are authors, Dr. Carla Hawk, Dr. Austin Robinson, Dr. Dexter Lee, Dr. Kisa Mathis, and Dr. Paula Warrington. Let's get started. Carla? So I want to welcome everyone to our podcast today where we discuss our editorial supporting and promoting Black physiologists. How can the APS help? My first question today is for Austin. So what was the motivation for writing this editorial? And can you set the stage a little bit for um, kind of how this editorial came about and how you pulled in the authors that you did? Sure. Thank you, Carla. So as many readers of the journal know, uh, the American Journal of Physiology, Heart and Circulatory Physiology has uh, been focusing a lot on social justice issues in science. Uh, So there's been recent editorials on promoting gender equity, uh, supporting scientists of different sexual orientation uh, and gender identities. And so for this uh, editorial, uh, editor-in-chief Dr. Mary Lindsay asked me to uh, lead an article focused on supporting uh, Black physiologists and some of the challenges that Black physiologists faced. Uh, So we specifically focus on on Black scientists. I think there will be future uh, editorials on other minoritized scientists. And so for this uh, specific editorial, I wanted to uh, loop in other APS members who have played a a big role in diversity and equity issues, uh, other Black scientists, especially uh, individuals from Black in physiology, such as uh, Kisa Mathis and Dexter Lee. Uh, And then we drafted an outline of some of the key challenges that are faced by Black physiologists. So in the article, we talked a lot about uh, how Black uh, students are more likely to be first-generation students, and so that can create a challenge. Uh, We discussed issues such as uh, discrimination in hiring and discrimination that scientists can face in their everyday life. And we also discussed the underrepresentation of Black physiologists, uh, specifically at the faculty level, uh, where we discussed that just 1% of physiology faculty are self-identifying as Black physiologists. Thank you, Austin. I I think that it is interesting to point out that, um, and what I actually appreciate, um, that what Mary Lindsay and AJP Hart are doing are highlighting that the experiences of different minoritized groups um, in the setting of STEM, it's not a monolith. And so highlighting the experiences of Black physiologists compared to other minoritized physiologists is really important. So Dexter, you are an APS counselor, and the kind of latter half of the editorial really is focused on what the APS specifically can do to help Black physiologists. So using kind of a tried and true teaching technique, the start, stop, continue, um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about some of the recommendations included included here in the editorial for senior leaders in our society to consider. Be a start, stop, continue for APS um, to help better support Black physiologists. Yes, uh, thank you, Carla. Yeah, I think that the APS has an opportunity to be at the forefront of this discussion for incorporating and including uh, Black physiologists all throughout the society and in various leadership positions, et cetera. 
I, I will say that the recommendations that are in the editorial are very good. There are six things that we uh, talk about uh, that the APS can expand upon or initiate. But I will say this, I think it is important uh, before the APS starts to initiate these programs is to do a deep dive in the experiences of Black physiologists. Um, for example, there's a wealth of information on this podcast, and there's even more information uh, throughout the profession. And if we are able to talk to those individuals and come up with all of the experiences, uh, identify common threads, and then start to address those issues prior to implementing uh, these recommendations in the article, I think they would be much more impactful. Um, for example, uh, in our article, we talk about uh, systemic problems that have that that have existed for a long time. And I think I'm the elder statesman in the group. I've started graduate school some 29 years ago. And so the numbers in terms of black physiologists are are very low. You know, we talk about in the article there being, 8% predoctoral trainees, 6% uh, postdoctoral uh, scientists, as well as 1% of faculty at uh, medical schools in the physiology department. So rather than continuing to approve a budget and essentially throw money at a situation, I think there should be a deep dive into the potential problems that are there, or the problems that exist, and then start the implementation of the programs. I think that's a really important point, and I I would look to um, some of our other panelists to comment on this as well. You know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading the editorial is thinking about the power of a professional kind of organization compared to things that are happening at individual academic institutions. And certainly that's one of the things um, the DEI committee talks a lot about is like, what do we have the power to do with an APS? And then what are things that are kind of systemic within academic institutions? And, and, and where is that overlap? So my kind of follow-up question for the panelists is, are there places of overlap between what the APS can be empowered to do in addition to doing that deep dive and talking to their members about what they what they need, right? So what can the APS provide in lieu of basically telling their academic institutions to do better and do more? So I can chime in a little bit um, to discuss one of the items that was brought up in the um, editorial, which dealt with just support in terms of grant funding, as well as mentoring for all of our Black physiologists at every level. I think that will be integral to really um, boosting the success of our um, minority members at the APS level that could be helpful. One of the things that we did highlight was the Ginther Gap and some of the disparities with funding pay lines at the NIH. And one thing that the APS could do could be to expand upon uh, programs like the Porter uh, Fellowship Program 
uh, to support postdocs or maybe some bridge funding or pilot funding for faculty, uh, which might help them to obtain NIH funding in the future. And I think another great point that Dexter and Carla are alluding to is with APS, you can have a sense of community kind of at the like nationwide or large scale, even international scale. But it seems like it could be more challenging to necessarily help Black physiologists feel a sense of belonging or community at their home institution. And so one of the things that we also talked about in the article was like an allyship toolkit or providing resources to help um, people become better allies or maybe something that we, we didn't talk about that could maybe even be considered as giving certain programs recognition for promoting diversity at the home institution, um, like within a department, if there's been certain cluster hires or initiatives that could be taken to make people feel kind of more welcome at their home institution. That's a really interesting thought, Austin. Um, that makes me think of the AAAS Sea um, Change Award program, right, where they reward kind of with a, re- in, not necessarily from a monetary sense, but from a recognition sense saying, these are departments or institutions that have done that deep dive, right? They've they've done, they've gotten into the kind of the weeds like Dexter was talking um, about in terms of a recommendation for APS. They've gotten into the weeds, they've identified key problems, and they came up with kind of a path to finding those solutions. So I think that's a really interesting, and and certainly, you know, it's an existing paradigm. Austin, you also mentioned the Ginther Gap, and that brings me actually to my next question for Paula. So this editorial highlights the importance of engaging Black scientists to be an active part of research collaborations, right? Certainly um, something that we have all talked about informally is that it often feels as Black physiologists, we get relegated to kind of intersectional work with DEI in science, which is important, but well, you all, I'm a medical writer, but you all are scientists first and foremost, right? So what does that look like, Paula? What is, what is, how, how could, let's say, someone who wants to be an ally at any of your home institutions, what, how do they facilitate, how do they engage Black scientists to be an active part of a research collaboration? And what do you think could be the potential impacts of these, um, of, of actions like this? So thank you, Carla. That's a very deep and important question that I think we have to discuss. And as you mentioned, yes, a lot of us are being asked to um, serve on DEI committees and to promote efforts for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And not many of us are being asked to participate in research collaborations that actually would help to improve our career trajectory. So what I have um, come up with is about four main things that we can do. The first is that we should invite each other to work on research projects that we have the expertise for. That would require us to know each other's areas of expertise ahead of time, of course, so probably having a database or some area where we can identify what each other's expertise are so that we can keep that in mind when we're designing our studies or planning our projects. And the second thing that I thought about is that we need to be bolder in our requests. I know I definitely need to work on that. Um, if you know of a colleague or a friend who is 
writing a project or a grant submission, you can offer your expertise. Say, hey, did you know that I'm an expert in this area? Um, would you be needing um, an expert in this area? And I'm happy to serve on the research project. The third thing I identified was that we need to be offered roles that matter. So it is one thing to be invited to serve as a, as a consultant, but it's even better if you're invited to serve as a co-investigator or a co-principal investigator where you would get a lot more um, from it and it will impact your career a lot better. And lastly, we, wanna, um, we want that when we're offering those collaboration opportunities that we actually use it. So not just on paper. When the um, work is written up, we want to be invited for co-authorship and co-authorship that matter in terms of the location on the um, author list, etc. And I think by doing this, we will be uh, making meaningful contributions to the success of um, Black physiologists, and that will ultimately result in retention of our faculty, because we know that you know, productivity is one of the metrics in which we are measured by um, for promotion and tenure. And so I think that this would be the ultimate outcome if we were to form these meaningful collaborations. That was incredibly well laid out, Paula. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I feel like we should have that bulleted list somewhere. But I will say that your first point about almost having a database that compiles area of expertise and like places looking for collaboration, getting back, frankly, to the title of our editorial about how the APS can help, right? This seems like a place where even beyond one's academic institution, this could be a place where we could create, you know, some sort of kind of database or, or like, a, like a gig matching sort of thing where you're saying, I'm looking for a collaborator who does X, or I am someone who is open to collaboration. And this is my, this is my, these are my areas of research expertise. Um, and maybe even building that network even further among, you know, other individuals within APS could be an interesting way to kind of tackle um, at least one of those one of those kind of points. Do any of our other panelists have any other suggestions? Um, I know that this is something that we keep kind of coming back to, right? That it that when we are at our home institutions, how do we get kind of those concrete contributions to help our CVs and help help science? Other thoughts? I wanted to add a slightly different perspective um, as coming from an HBCU. I do receive a number of requests. Uh, to write a letter of collaboration or to be a part of a grant submission. You know, I, I'm aware of the uh, diversity component that's needed on many of these applications, especially when it comes to trainees or just having diversity on an application period. Uh, we assume that that's the reason uh, why we're reached out to or contacted. Uh, but as, as stated by Paula and others, it should go beyond that. And I would recommend that if you are contacted uh, to participate in such applications, for you to um, just be forthright and ask, what do you see in terms of my contribution to this particular application, program, et cetera. And that way you, of course, can uh, better understand the intentions of, of the contact. 
and also to interject, right? Because uh, some individuals may not know, as Paula alluded to earlier, that you are a research expert in a particular area or you do have experience or you could contribute to the science of a particular proposal, uh, manuscript, et cetera, instead of being that, quote, diversity component. That brings me actually to a question that I did not share with you all beforehand, but I think it's something that happens a lot within APS. And I know that when I was in academia, it happened there as well. And I want to pose a question to our panelists. So when you are known for being a Black physiologist, right, oftentimes you are the person that is like the default, like, oh, let me, let me call Dexter. Let me call Austin, right? And that can at times lead to feeling like it's an overburdening of us. How do you help facilitate the networks of people who are trying to do the good work? They're trying to be allies. They're trying to bring more diverse voices into the fold. Do you just say no? Do you say, I know someone else? Look some, look somewhere. Like, how, how do you handle this? Because I know that everyone on this call is absolutely overburdened with requests because you are prominent Black physiologists in your respective areas of expertise. How do you handle that question? The broad answer would be all of the above, right? There, You can't do everything, right? We talked about the minority tax. And oftentimes, individuals would think that the minority tax is only applicable to minorities at majority institutions. Well, it goes beyond that, right? Because people may know who you are or they know of your name or if they've heard of you, they will reach out. And as stated, we have to include many individuals. You, you can refer someone because you can't say yes to everything. Um, that's, that's common, that's common for everyone. And I think what is also an issue for me and, and I've talked to others is that, okay, we do request that, you know, minorities or Black physiologists are at the table. And so you almost feel obligated to say yes to some things and you feel guilty by saying no to some things. Well, we've advocated for this position. Here's that opportunity. Well, you can't say yes to everything and you do the best to delegate or refer someone that will fill that role equally as well. I think um, Dexter answered very well. You know, I think when I'm asked to do something, I usually say yes, but I'm learning. I have to say no because I can't do it all. And I think the only answer would be to increase the number of black physiologists. We need more, we need more of us so that we can spread out the opportunities. And, you know, we have other people to you know, pass the job along to. I think that's the only answer. And that's, I know that's a tough one. <laughs> that's actually a 
perfect transition, Kisa, into my next question for you all. I'd like to share with our audience um, that you in particular on our call today do a lot of physiology outreach and um, having worked together on the DEI committee, I know that physiology outreach is something um, particularly close to your heart. And I think the point that you just made is a perfect time for me to ask that question. How do you think the idea of physiology outreach ties into some of what is discussed in our editorial? I was rereading the editorial this morning and I was like, we didn't really talk about outreach in the editorial, but it's so important. You know, I do have a passion for outreach. And, you know, what I mean by outreach is just the act of spreading the word about science, the word about science careers and physiology in particular to those who may not know much about these topics. So I make it my duty to go to pre-K through 12th grade classrooms to do science presentations. Um, we also host tours in our own lab to give students the opportunity to see what a science lab looks like. We participate in science fairs and career days. Um, it's just, it's so, it's so critical, it's so important. And the reason why it's so important is because of that 1% of Black physiology professors that was talked about in the editorial. I mean, we always talk about the pipeline, um, but my thing is, what if this pipeline just dries out? Like, what are we going to do? We need to make students excited about physiology and science in general. And the only way we're going to do it in some communities is to go the Black scientists, other scientists, other physiologists. We need to go into these classrooms and make an impact. That's the only way because they're not going to teach about this in schools. I mean, generally they they do bring up science. They do talk about experiments, but it's not the type of experiments we do. It's not biomedical sciences. So I just think we have to we have to be active. We have to go into these classrooms and introduce this field to the students at a young age and get them interested. And we know it's important because it just showcases sciences, it showcases black scientists, it lets, and we know, we all know that representation matters. You will want to be who you, who you see, or I still didn't rephrase it. Someone help me. What is the best way to say that? You can't be it if you can't see it. That's, that's my it. version. Yeah, that's <laughs> I just think, you know, we have to go out, we have to go out and do the outreach so that they can see us. They can know that we're there. They can know that this is a, a career option. Also give them access to real biomedical science experiments and workshops and, and even the mentorship. So it's, it's all important. That's fantastic, Kisa. I'm so glad I asked you that question. I knew you were going to have such a wonderful and passionate answer. For our other panelists, are there different versions of, you know, Kisa really shines and, and believes in going into kind of the K-12 classrooms. Are there other versions of outreach that can be done? Are there other ways that we can kind of put ourselves out into the into the lay community and, and get the younger generation um, excited about science so that that pipeline doesn't dry up? Yeah, I mean, Tisa uh, talked about such great points. Without this outreach, you don't have anything to go in the pipeline. And I also like to think of this editorial as being the, the, the piece to actually fortify this pipeline and to make it clear, right? And there are many ways in which uh, we can, of course, um, reach out to the community. And I've received a number of personal uh, notes, emails, et cetera, and say, it was so good to see you. 
right? Because now I can I can see what I can become, as stated earlier. And so representation is so important, uh, whether that's through direct uh, demonstrations and communication, as Kisa mentioned. I've also served as a judge for science fairs. I've gone to give talks at um, middle schools, et cetera. So there are many different ways to, number one, to establish a relationship and build upon it, right? Uh, it's not just an activity to go out and take a picture that I was doing this for the community. These are sincere relationships that often require um, mentoring for a long period of time, right? You will maybe impact someone very early up in their career and they will reach out to you later on and say, hey, by the way, I'm here. It was your presentation at this particular day on this particular time that encouraged me to pursue uh, my profession. I just wanted to bring up one um, additional venue. If we think about social media and how much it is used now, I know I'm not on TikTok, but I know a lot of cool kids and a lot of people are, that we could probably spread the word about how exciting science is, medical, biomedical science, by being more visible on social media platforms. There is a fantastic editorial written by Andre Isaacs, um, who is a chemist, literally this week about the power of social media and representation. So yes, you are spot on, Paula. So for all of our panelists, right, and we kind of touched on this a little bit, but I really just want to hear each of your individual takes here. While this editorial is focused on what APS can do, what is one message you want your our listeners today or your readers of the uh, or the readers of our editorial to take back to their home institutions and places of work? What's one nugget that you want people to go back to their home institution whether or not they are a black physiologist or hopefully an ally, right? What's that one thing? One one small thing that they could do different. Change begins with one person making a decision to do something about a problem. And I think that instead of us looking at our colleague or our neighbor, look within ourselves and see what we can do. Um, one person at a time, we could make a huge impact. What else? I think to piggyback off Paula's point about, you know, how we can only change things around us sometimes, it's it's harder to make like big structural changes. And one of the themes that we've talked about today is like one of the reasons that we're overcommitted and asked to do so many things is because there are only you know, 1% of black physiologists. And so when people think of, oh, I would like to diversify this seminar series, or, oh, I need to add some diversity to my symposium, you know, maybe they only think of a small group of people that they can ask. And then on our end, we we try to be empathetic. And at the same time, we also know if we don't do the work, like who will? So I think to kind of just keep building the network of Black scientists out there, one of the things that I've tried to do is, I mean, obviously I try to treat all of my students well and everything, but like whenever I've had a Black undergraduate student rotate through the lab or like a Black graduate student, I really try to like make a point to check in on them. Like, I know I can't necessarily be like their friend, but kind of have a, a friend-like relationship where we talk about sports, we talk about stuff that's going on outside of work just to give them at least one other person that they feel like they have some connection to. And hopefully 
that kind of motivates them or encourages them to keep going. And so that we can, you know, kind of do our small part to build the number of black physiologists that are out there. Maybe it doesn't happen, you know, tomorrow, but we can build that over the next several years. Yeah, I agree to follow up on Austin's point. Um, the environment is crucial. Many times there is a lack of a sense of community, and that goes a long way in de determining the longevity of Black physiologists uh, in the profession. And so I agree, reaching out to individuals, also continuing to encourage colleagues to uh, participate in professional development op opportunities and networking, right? It, it, it seems uh, sometimes an inconvenience and there may be funding issues when it comes to traveling to meetings, but they are so important for not only expanding our network, but also to be a resource and to let uh, everyone know that you're out there and available and willing to assist. Several medical and graduate students have come to me in the past and said, you are my very first Black science professor. And for me, this is amazing, but awful at the same time. And it's awful because it's 2023 and we're still having this happen. Um, but it is amazing because these students are finally able to see a Black professor and they can see that if they really want to do this, you know, this is a, a career option for them as well. So I do, I do love that part. Um, but I just ask that, just the take home message, you know, I ask that you recognize the challenges for black scientists and make sure to do what you can to help. Um, let's encourage and support careers in academia for black scientists so these students can see examples. And it's for, it's for now and for future generations. I think that was very well said. Um, are there any, any last thoughts from any of our panelists today? Any, any last nuggets about anything that you'd like to, to share with our audience? I mean, I wanted to actually talk about the allyship piece um, that we've discussed in the article. And I think the importance in the importance of the allyship piece is sometimes underestimated and undervalued, right? Oftentimes an ally may mention your name or someone who is qualified when you're not there. And diversity is, is the job for everyone and not just black physiologists, right? So in order for us to proceed and the science to proceed and to everyone to benefit from a diverse environment, we all need to have an ownership in this. And so I, again, would encourage all members of the society and organizations, institutions to be that ally, to be that ally. I, we talk a little bit about this in the editorial, but since you brought it up, Dexter, I think this is a worthy question to actually ask and capture on audio. What does a good ally look like? You know, there, I think I, I'm pretty confident in uh, saying that I'm not the only one who's had an experience in the DEI space where sometimes allyship feels performative instead of um, intentional. 
And there have absolutely been experiences where you feel like people are doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. So what does a good ally look like, right? So if you had someone who said, all right, I'm, I'm buying into this editorial completely. I hear and, and I'm feeling like everything these guys are saying, like, what can I do as a non-Black physiologist? Like, how, what, what do I do? I have an example of a good ally. I'm thinking of one of my own allies and um, how I was approached. You know, I, you've told me, that person said, you've told me your career goals. I've had a similar path. I can help. Send me your CV. Let me tell you what's good on your CV, you know, and, and how can you improve your CV to help you get to where you want to be and then give you specific things that you should do, specific workshops or courses or programs that you should join. So that is a good ally, in my opinion. And while we may not be able to call names, but I think a very um, amazing example is our editor-in-chief, Dr. Mary Lindsay, who serves as such a great um, supporter um, for all of us on this call that I'm, um, as far as I'm aware. Um, and she has stated multiple times that her goal is to really raise the voices of minority um, physiologists. And I think she has served as a great sponsor, um, putting us up for various opportunities. So I think, you know, in, in the definition of the word of an ally, I would think of the person, Mary Lindsay. She um, was actually my example. <laughs> <laughs> so. Of course she was. She's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just to add to the point, uh, someone who is sincere, if an if an ally truly wants to see you succeed and there's maybe nothing in it for them, I would consider that a true ally. Yeah. Reaching back or reaching out or across to uh, help someone to to get in the space that they need to be in or to introduce them to a person that will help their career or help in any professional way is a true ally. Uh, I, I think I just would follow up with Keith's point and Dexter's point and just about being sincere um, and, and truly looking out for the person that you're trying to be an ally for. So I think a lot of times the best allies are people who also just happen to generally be good collaborators or good mentors. So you're not just trying to meet some sort of quota with representation or, I mean, I've, I've even heard discussions about in the past, someone has mentioned they have a new grant and so they'd like to seek out somebody that they could use to fill like a diversity supplement. And I feel like, like that's not going into something with good intentions. Like you should really be in it for the long haul and willing to mentor somebody and give them advice on different opportunities that they should pursue and introduce them to your network and, uh, really just be invested in the person rather than trying to get something out of it or trying to increase representation just for the sake of doing so. Yeah, it is really interesting when I think about the people that I've worked with um, at APS that are really like the textbook definition of what an ally should look like. I, I think that altruism piece really is in there. Like they're genuinely just like really good people. And then it's the people that say like, how can I use my voice to amplify yours without me talking at the same time? 
Any other last thoughts? Any other things that we talked about in the editorial that we have not brought to light with a couple minutes we have left? Uh, one thing that we did talk about in the editorial that we didn't touch on too much today was partnering with HBCUs. So Dexter mentioned people reaching out to him for letters of support and things like that, uh, and for like a diversity piece to a grant. But I think one of the things that kind of coincides with a, with what Kisa said is um, just kind of building a pipeline and reaching out to HBCUs and engaging with the students there. So there are different programs. I know a popular one is the uh, American Heart Association HBCU Scholar Program, but irrespective of that, you could just reach out to different professors at HBCUs and give a guest lecture for a class, or at least in our case, we're fairly close to an HBCU at Auburn. So we've had students from Tuskegee University visit the lab and just check out what a human physiology lab looks like and few students have been able to get involved in our lab. So I think that's one thing that we touched upon in the editorial that we didn't really get to talk about too much today. I think that's yet another place that APS could help facilitate and support Black physiologists. We have lots of APS members, both at, um, you know, majority institutions and uh, minority serving institutions and HBCUs. We certainly could facilitate that, um, particularly with some of our new membership structures. Dexter. Yeah, and I've thought about this for some time, and I, I think the approach needs to be innovative, right? This isn't your, you know, graduate mentor's physiology anymore, right? We, we're not going to uh, keep using the same approaches to reach a new audience. And as you mentioned earlier, Carla, about the article that's in Nature, what are those approaches, right? I, because uh, when I talk to undergrads here, many students are interested in dual degree programs, right? Maybe they're young, <laughs> maybe they're naive, but they are thinking about MD, PhD programs, MD, MPH, MD, uh, MBA, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you will find very few individuals that are uh, strictly um, trying to go to graduate school for research purposes only. So it, it will be worthwhile to uh, having that conversation about the approach um, at minority serving institutions such as HBCUs to understand uh, what is it that we need to do to put physiology on their radar, right? Uh, if I go to an undergraduate class, uh, whether they're sophomore, juniors, and seniors, there are quite a few people that have a vague idea of what physiology is or what physiologists do. And but they are very eager to learn. And so that this is a ripe opportunity to cultivate uh, this pipeline that we've talked about that's so critical uh, for seeing this end product we which we all desire to see. It was such an honor to be part of this conversation, also to hear your experiences, to hear your insight. So hope that AJP Heart and Cirque, this podcast, have been an ally in this process. You know, you're 
always welcome to come back and tell us anything that you want. We can always continue the conversation. I just wanted to say thank you. So thank you, Dexter, Austin, Carla, Paula, and Kisa. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.